All right, we are on uh, a new series now that uh, is exciting. It's got just the cutest little graphic. Look at that. So comfortable. Um, We're talking about, uh, the series is called Quieted, about cultivating a quiet soul, one that is quiet. I, I, I think my neighborhood's pretty quiet. I really do. I live about 500 yards that way. I live on Gary Street. And really, if you go to other towns, Sandy's pretty quiet. And people talk about that when they move here. It's quiet. It's usually pretty quiet. There's always something going on in the neighborhood, though. Some noise going on. Nine times out of ten, it's a leaf blower. I, I think it's because leaf blowing is the funnest job in the world. Who doesn't want to have a giant air cannon and have the most satisfying job? Do you ever look behind yourself when you're leaf blowing and see what you did? It's amazing. It's like vacuuming a dirty carpet. It's the best job in the world. And I think that's why people never cease. I don't know what goes on. It could be 6 in the morning, the first thing fired up. I hear leaf blowers going outside. I'm like, this couldn't wait. 6 in the morning, leaf blowers going now. It could be how dads communicate with each other. I don't know if there's some sort of like, two longs, one short. Bill's got beers and he's fixing a mower right now. Let's go. All the dads, Oscar, Mike, we're heading that way. But they're going all the time. And so I've, I've adjusted now living um, in, in Sandy for 10 years and uh, Damascus before that. We were a ways from 212, but 212 never stops. 212 is New York City. It never sleeps. That's, that drive is always going. And so I'd lived there long enough. I moved out of the country when I was 18. I forget how quiet it is out there. My parents, uh, they rent out that property. Now they're renting it. My brother Jake rents it out. And so for the first time in forever, I can go to the house I grew up in. We go out there, and I open the door, and I sh- it. And do you know what you hear on George Road outside Estacada? Wind in the trees. That is it. It's amazing. I forget what that's like. I remember being a little kid going to my grandma's house in Happy Valley and being like, what is, what is that on the shades? There's a light outside. Artificial lights come through the window. That doesn't happen at nighttime. I grew up in the country. Nothing comes through the window at nighttime except for stars and moonlight. I just grew up used to that. And until I get out there and until I get into the quiet, I don't realize how loud I am internally. You ever go to a place and you think you're going to get some peace and some rest and it's quiet, but you're not? You're loud on the inside, you don't realize you're shouting? It's like that moment when you've got earbuds in and someone talks and you pull them out and you have this terrifying moment, you must respond, but you have no idea what the volume is in the room right now. It's like, what? Oh, sorry, I, I, that was too loud. You ever, like, I do that, maybe it's just me. But you don't realize how loud things are. I'll go into quiet places expecting to find peace with God and hear from him. And yet I won't stop winding and winding and worrying and planning and thinking, checking things off. Quiet is hard to find in a quiet soul. It's hard to find even when the world is quiet around you. There was a study on uh, American lifestyles, what led to anxiety in adults, the systemic broad across the life anxiety. So they looked at things, and they interviewed lots of people. They were looking for things that would be common answers, excuses, maybe things they were doing, eating, whatever it was going to be. So they did this broad study, and one of the findings is interesting is that they heard from so many of them the phrase, I have no time. They kept saying, I have no time, I have no time, I have no time. And so they, they started, the people they are interviewing, like, I want you to drill in on that. And as they drilled down on the no time, they found how irrational some of the no time really was. People saying they have no time, but they scroll on Facebook for four hours at the end of the day. People saying they have no time, but they have these long drives to work. And what they found was there was an inability for people with high anxiety to take a breather when the breather comes. 
And so when you're in the car and you're driving back from work, you can't work, nor can you do the work of home. It's a moment when your soul should have a breather, but a lot of us are in the habit of not taking it. They said it would be like going snorkeling and you're down exploring the reef and then you swim up to the top and you don't breathe and you go right back down. You didn't breathe at the top like you're supposed to. We have this way that when we get into quiet, when we get into peace, even if it's brief, even if it is the car ride home, even if it is the 20 minutes before our kids get back from school and we're home, whatever it is, in those quiet moments, we are going and going and going. The machine's revving and winding and going, and we don't slow down. It's a missing quiet soul to, in, to indulge in and to experience those quiet moments. The pauses that come in life are being skipped, they found, when that study with people with high anxiety orders, disorders, I mean. So what I mean by a loud soul is the busy soul, the one that you can bring it to the water, but it won't drink. You can take it to the quiet room to reflect, but it won't reflect. This is the loud soul, the distracted soul. Where we take the small bits of quiet we do get, and we pack it with life's worries and endeavors. To be who you're meant to be, who God called you to be, every person is called to have a quiet soul to hear and to listen. It's, it's, it's one of the main things that God is therapeutically trying to work out of all of us. There are uh, theophanies, that is when God appears to a person and they can see him. We see these in the Old Testament. There's Christophanies when it's Jesus, which is just a type of theophany. There's angelic visitations like um, Gabriel coming to Mary and Michael coming to Israel and all these different times that angels show up and God shows up, Jesus shows up, and they almost always open with the same statement. Be at peace, relax, calm down. It's like the first thing heaven says when it gets to earth. The first thing out of order is, wow, you are all way too tightly wound. You are too worried about this. I'm not coming to hurt you. I'm not coming to bring you any disaster. If you're going to hear what I'm going to say right now, you need to calm down. You need to settle down. You need to unwind a little bit. Heaven always opens with peace. Chaos is an earthly in an irrational mode of life. It is irrational what we think we can do. A loud soul is honestly a soul that's overgrown itself to where you think on the inside you're responsible for things that aren't your responsibility, that you're powerful enough to do things that aren't your power, and you will not accept your own limitations in the time that you're in and the power that you have. And we get over busy far beyond, and it's an irrational thing. Heaven brings rationality, a rational perspective of peace. That just as the angel said on the night Jesus was born, that there is peace on earth and goodwill to those on whom the favor of the Lord rests. When God is on your side, there is peace, there is favor. No matter where you are, no matter what, what things are looking like. But our souls are overclocked, overheated, overburdened, and the first order of business with heaven is always the same thing. Quiet that hyper soul so you can be silent to hear the whisper of God. So we're going to open. This is the first uh, passage of this series. We're going to be reading uh, an entire psalm, all three verses of it. Psalms 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself, or as other translations say, my soul. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. 
two things about this. One is it's a song of ascent. We just did a whole series on this. If you want to know about it, you can listen to those recordings. But basically, a song of ascent is a psalm written about a pilgrimage. It's a, something a person would sing as they go from where they are to Jerusalem to worship. But most important to us today is it says, of David. Now, I'll tell you, I, I think it's fair to offer the two perspectives people have on this. I tend to lean towards David wrote things that are attributed to him. But there is an argument that in that time in, in Hebrew culture, uh, culture around the area, that they would sometimes write songs or poetry from the perspective of a character and not necessarily that it's saying it was from that person's. But either way it goes, whether this is someone 100 years or 500 years after David writing this, they intend for us, even in that situation, to, in, to interpret it through the life and events of David, that that is our context for it. Uh, I tend to lean towards that David actually did write this, that he is the author. And so as we interpret it through uh, his life and experiences, other way it goes, whether you are of either opinion, the good news is, is we interpret it the same way. It's through the experiences of David that we should interpret what this means. Not concerned with matters beyond me, which is a really enormous statement to say for a man who was king of an everlasting dynasty. The Lord said, I will make you king, and there will always be a descendant of yours on the throne, and the deceptor won't depart from you. Referring to the time that lineage comes to Jesus, and Jesus is king forever. Jesus is the descendant of David. He is a, he's called son of David. And to say he's not concerned with matters far beyond him is quite the statement. What's amazing is that David, though he lived a grand calling, I'm just going to say conservatively, probably, bigger than mine. I don't think I'm going to surpass David, and I don't think any of us will. He lived a grand calling, yet he never felt he needed to seize it. His belief was is that God would need to seize that calling for him. David, the first time we see David, he's being brought out of the field. He's being told, he gets told by the prophet Samuel, you will be made king of Israel one day, and he's anointed in front of his family, his brothers, and everything. You know what happens next? He turns around and goes back out to the field for years. And he just takes care of sheep. We have no indication ever that that is something he hated or that he was stressed out there. All the Psalms he writes about tending sheep are so peaceful and so tranquil, so formative about his relationship with God as he was out there alone, that it defines who he is as a man, defines the kingdom that he founds, and defines uh, everything that comes after him. Meanwhile, as he goes out to tend the sheep, his brothers are, in, are conscripted into the army of Saul. And they go and they serve in Saul's army. We get this no idea that he's concerned or restless, wondering if his brothers, and there was some confusion with his dad that when Samuel came to anoint one of his sons as king, that he meant one of the other brothers and made a mistake. There's no, there doesn't seem to be a concern with David that one of them's going to take it, that Saul's going to see them, that they'll be impressive. The Bible's very clear. David's brothers were tall. They were impressive. They looked like kings. Samuel was a prophet. When he saw the first one, he said, surely that's a king, and it wasn't. They're impressive, but we don't get this idea of jealousy or concern that his brothers are going to take it. He continues to keep the sheep diligently, as if that's all he is ever going to do with his life. One day, his father, Jesse, comes to him, and he says, take these provisions, take them to your brothers, and then bring me back a report of the battle. So he leaves the sheep, takes his backpack, and he heads that way, drops them off, and when he gets there, he hears... Um, 
the Champions Challenge. The Champions Challenge is this thing they used to do. I think the idea was to stop bloodshed. Two armies would face off and they'd say, you pick your best champion, we'll pick ours, they'll face off. Whoever wins in single combat will be victor, we'll all go home and we'll just live as if the whole side won the battle and it will settle the matter. So he hears Goliath threatening and he hears Goliath saying things against God, against God's people and David is filled with the spirit of God and under God's unction, under his nudging, he responds rising up, defeating Goliath in single combat, and earns an incredible moment of favor and faith. And it's extremely clear, everything about that story is God doing it for him. Even, even the fact that the rock would fly and hit Goliath right in the head, the way that, that shields were held, the way the helmets come down, it's a detail given that we don't get, they would have gotten immediately, that that was a one in a million shot, aka it was divine. For a little boy to fling a rock and for it to go so hard that it penetrates a human skull is insane. In fact, there's depictions of David, uh, the, the famous marble, uh, very naked depiction of David. That uh, Who did it? Was it Michelangelo? Michelangelo's David, I think. His, hand is, is, uh, his right hand is disproportionately enormous. And the reason is Michelangelo's reflecting that that shot came from God. And so David's depicted as David, but with God's hand. And so in this moment, we see God elevates David and gives him a moment of incredible favor and fame. Years after shepherding, years after being small, God's the one that begins the fame. And that story ends in a very important way. Saul says, who is that? Who's the boy that just won the champion's battle? And General Abner says, that is David. It's been so long since I've gotten emotional, and it happens now. This is the stupidest thing. All right, here we go. He says, that's David, son of Jesse of the tribe of Judah. It's the first time we hear his name like that, and that's how you're going to hear David's name again and again and again, because that is who he is. That's who he famously is. He is David, king of Israel, son of Jesse of the tribe of Judah. And he begins this incredible calling for this man. And it was something that God established. David clearly understood his calling was not a mission from God, but a gift from God. God did not say, go make yourself king or go worry. Let your soul stretch beyond its boundaries thinking you could make yourself king. But let me handle it. He didn't sully the calling by making it his own. For David, the calling and fulfillment, these were matters beyond him. They were far beyond him. If God was going to do it, God would have to lift him up. There are so many things David could have worried about as he's tending those sheep. There were political upheavals. There was loss of land. There was a financial crisis. There was a weapons crisis. The Philistines had recently capitulated all of the Israelites and took all their weapons. And that army that I'm referring to that David's brothers were serving in, they had like hammers and pitchforks. Only the king and his son had swords. And so you have this horrible situation where he might be thinking, this is my kingdom. I should be leading. I should really get in charge right now. I should put my hands to this thing. And yet, there's this amazing thing about David. His whole life is summed up with this amazing thing. He had a heart after God. He just thought and was like God, loved things like God, and was in sync with him in this mature yet childlike way. I am very inspired that David endeavored to be a great shepherd at this time, that that was his mission. I'm going to be the best shepherd ever. He gets, he gets there, and do you know what he said why he could defeat Goliath? He's bringing up his shepherd's resume. It says, one time a bear came to take the shepherd, the sheep, and I killed it. Another time it was a lion. That's my resume. I'm a shepherd. Now let me kill that giant man. And it worked. 
it's incredible of all the things to worry about, the things that were too great for him. He focused on what was his life in that moment. He understood where he ended and where God began. I'm telling you, this is why there are times I take a break from reading the news. There's times that I can read the news and I can see what's going on on it and I can accept it in this, what will happen will happen in God is God kind of way. But then I can get far too concerned with it, far too wrapped into it, getting worried into things as if, um, as if I had control over something or I have to worry about it to fix it. In those moments, I, that's when I decide it's time to stop checking the news every day. One of the best gifts you can give your soul is to draw a boundary and confine yourself to where you're currently living and what you're supposed to currently be doing. To just let it be small enough and to cut around that place and say, this is where you are. To say, I'm not a US senator, I'm not president, I'm not governor, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a public figure. I am me. And I really should just live this rational life of reality God's put me in right now, just right now. Some of us in this room need to fast reading the news. Give it up for a time. Let your soul recharge. Some of us need to take Facebook or Twitter or now X off of our phones. If things in your life have made it hard for you to be centered, in, centered with joy in your timing and in your limitations right now, those things need to go. If there are things in your life that are bothering you about your timing and limitations right now, they are not good for you. It's winding the soul up. It's spinning it out of its, out of its sockets. It's taking it and growing far too large for where it needs to be. Where you are right now, God's given you joy for the life you're in right now, and you can enjoy the moments as they come. Don't fear that such an endeavor will make you passive in this world. I've never seen anybody succeed like this, like young David. He was not passive. The time that you do need to respond to the things around you, the time that you do need to take responsibility and even grow a little bit and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address this situation and this issue, God will burden you for that when the time comes, and he will make sure you're empowered to do so. And I'll tell you this, I found this in my own life. The burdens that God lays on you in the quiet place are the ones that remain. They're the ones that grow, and they're the ones that change you and change things around you. It's the burdens we add in the loud place. We're freaking out. We feel like, I need to handle this. I need to address this. Those are the places you're most likely to make mistakes, when you're most likely to bite off more than you can chew, when you're most likely to step out and you weren't supposed to. But in the quiet place, that burden God gives you, that's the thing that changes. There's an interesting reference here about uh, being weaned. And it's most references in the Bible about breastfeeding are always about nourishment and care for the dependent. So there's times that, that Israel is like, an, is like a nursed child or says, I loved you like a, like a, like a maid takes a child to their breast. There's all this idea of, of nourishment and love and protection. This is an outlier because it's not focusing on, it's focusing on weaning. And it can throw us off, but the process here that's being referred to is the weaning process. Weaned because uh, for a child that's breastfeeding, it is not instinctual to be held by its mother and not breastfed. And it's not instinctual to eat solid food. And the process of taking that child and transitioning from that to this takes time and effort, and it's difficult, but there comes a point when it is set. You take a child that's weaned and try to breastfeed them, they don't want to do it anymore. 
Because as instinctual as it was to breastfeed, it is now just as instinctual to eat solid food. That there's the, I remember with both our kids, there was this moment where they would be more calm with me than with Elena because they were like, no, oh, I want a nurse, and they would go crazy. And then I'd hold them, and they'd calm down. That was my help. I, that they would be calm with me, but there comes a point in weaning that this is referring to when a child can be even at more peace with their parent and can simply just sit with them. He says his soul's been weaned off this kind of worry because weaning, or excuse me, worry is instinctual, and it is hard to retrain from, like a child having to be trained out of no longer breastfeeding. Worry is something that is just so... It's an instinct we have to be trained out of and, and worked uh, and therapeutically by the hands of God taken away. Because you go on vacation, and you're probably like me. It takes you days to wind down. And then you're there for like a day, and then it starts to wind up because you know you're about to go home. And that dip, the valley of it, how big it is, is how mature you are along this line. How quickly can you shift out of all the things you're supposed to do and just simply be? That is how weaned you are. That's the process. It is a difficult thing. Our frantic minds, they, they worry along well-worn paths of worry and concern, running down them quickly. What is your brain, what does it start firing off when you're in silence? I found out recently some people avoid silence because they don't want to be alone with their own thoughts. I swear that mind says, okay, quiet moment checklist. What should you be worrying about right now? And it just starts checking them off. Like, did you pay that bill? Did you call this person? Did you text that one back? Have you responded to that email? Oh, boy. And I have all my time taken over by the most annoying soul auditing my life excellence in that moment. I hate being audited by myself. What does your soul say in a quiet moment? What does it say when you're finally uh, at a place where you could think? When I get away from meditative silence, sometimes I'll take a trip away or just a half day, and I find I spend, depending on how long I'm there, it could be 75% of the time just trying to unwind, just to get to that last 25% that's really important when I'm finally not worrying about other things. That second part is what it's all about with God. It takes discipline uh, to be at this humble peace with where our life comes to and where it's at naturally right now. It's a behavior that we're trained out of like a weaning child that God wants to train us out of. And eventually, I'll tell you, the point of this psalm is that there comes a time that as instinctual as it was to constantly worry, it becomes just as instinctual to be at peace with God. That it is a thing of ease. The thing about instincts when they go away is that it's like from the core of us out, we can do something different. From a child, from their core out, they can just be at peace with their parent. From the core out, you could simply be at peace with God. Then we can sit beside God and be at peace and hear what he's saying. And this is spiritual maturity when we start to think like God. If you want to cultivate a quiet soul, one of the best things I can think of is agree with God more often. Spend your time agreeing. When you read scripture, don't read it like, okay, now you need to convince me. Why am I not going to worry? Say those words. Agree with them. Make them yours. Plagiarize God with your life, with everything in you. Where you'll say it, it's the kind of attitude of God, I will repeat back what you said. Your thinking shall become my thinking. Lord, you say peace, peace. 
And so I'm going to turn to my soul and I'm going to say, peace, peace. You say, be quiet. And I will say to my soul, soul, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. We would read Psalms like Psalms 91 and make it our words. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This is this incredible act of spiritual maturity where we quit saying, God, convince me, and we say, all right, God, I'm going to start adopting your way of thinking. I'm going to go for this with all that's in my soul. I'm going to say it back. I'm going to repeat it. This psalm ends in this beautiful way in verse 3. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Ending on this trusting note that the whole thing begins with. Trust is a mode of living for the quieted soul. And as I said earlier, there are so many stories you can find of David having this incredible moment of trust, letting God make him king. From the time that he doesn't kill Saul in the cave and says, God, if you're going to elevate me to king, it won't be me through murder. When his son throws him out of Jerusalem and it's completely hopeless and the throne is usurped from him, he says, if God wants me to be king again, he'll set me back up. Everybody, let's just leave without a fight. There are times in his life he does this, but I tell you, they are far more concentrated and easier to find when he was young, and they become harder to find as he gets older. Because David was actually better at this when he had faith like a child. When he had faith like a child, he was better at it. Jesus spoke of such a thing. One day the disciples are arguing who's going to be the greatest, and they said to him this, who then is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes we read this and we, we reduce this teaching down to being just about, you need to trust like a gullible kid. Just believe it. I could tell my daughter that from age 18 to 25, I was taming tigers and I could probably make her believe it. That's not what this is referring to. The context drives the point that these are men that are trying to jockey and get position. They're stressed out. Their souls are trying to grab and take and and to make everything they want for themselves happen. And he's saying, kids don't do that. Kids don't do that. Kids come in and they simply just trust they're going to be taken care of. They don't jockey for position. They don't get in these fights. His lesson, in a sense, it goes back to David saying, Uh, You should be like a boy who say, though he was prophesied to be king, he tended the sheep and didn't worry because he knew that if God was going to make him king, God was going to make him king. Kids don't plan and scheme and fret. They trust that when they want food, their parents are going to give it to them. They don't worry about mortgage rates. Imagine trying to explain the mortgage rate situation to a five-year-old. That's a matter far beyond them. Too wonderful for them to comprehend. Wonderful and a bad use of the word wonderful, too. Such knowledge is beyond them. They need to just focus on what they're doing now. They need to just sit there and play with Legos and eat their chicken nuggets, whatever it is they're going to do. And I'll tell you, if they just live in that and don't stress about all the things that an adult needs to worry about, that child will grow up well well-adjusted, they will grow up right, they will mature at the right time, and they'll be prepared for the life that's ahead of them. And the same thing is true with us, and that's the whole point. That if we just live in the box God gives us, and we trust that he will take care of us, if we say, soul, these are your boundaries, 
this is who I am. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go beyond that. I'm gonna be humble in where I'm at. That is the soul that matures properly. Not out there pushing, not trying to comprehend things far beyond themselves or thinking they have power over things that they really don't. Which is how this psalm ends, trusting in God. It ends in that phrase, both now and forevermore. Or we could say, trust God in the present and trust God for the future. Now, right now, trusting God for right now, just in the, in the time limitations and the restrictions on your life, the place that you're at, that is who you are. Don't let the news tell you they're supposed to be responding to things that, that you're not called to respond to right now. Don't let the worries of social media make you think you're supposed to be at a certain level of your life you're not supposed to be yet. God gives you peace in moments every day. Breathe when you come to the surface. Breathe in the quiet moments. Let your soul be quiet. To where we could go beyond just being quiet in the quiet, we could even be quiet in the noise. Uh, the, uh, the greatest thing a Christian could ever endeavor to be is to be conformed in the image of Christ. And that guy slept through a storm in a boat. I want to be at a spot in my life when the storms of life are going, I can still have a quiet soul in those moments and not just endeavoring to quit screaming when it's so quiet outside. Lord, I ask that you would help us to mature us, to help us like a child being weaned, being trained out of it, God. Could you help us to step back and really look at our life and to accept our limitations, to accept the time of life that we're in, to not follow just blind ambition, but to say that what I want is what the Lord would have for me. God, I pray that we could feel our souls shrink down like an inflamed wound over swollen, God, with a swelling come down and rejoin into its true form. We could thrive, that we could be whole, and most importantly, we could find you. You say so often, I want to speak to you, peace to you. Peace be unto you. And then you begin to speak, God, let the peace start now, that we could hear you more often. God, I pray that an intimate connection would happen in our lives between us and you through that peace. That in the place of peace, though, yes, Lord, we know you're there in the chaos. You teach and you guide and you encourage so powerfully in peace. Lord, let us have peace in you. Let us have smaller souls. Let us be accepting of our limitations, our time of life, to be faithful in the little shepherding tasks that you've given us in the moment and to simply enjoy this Sunday and Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, that this week we could just simply enjoy them as they come and breathe when our breathers arrive. Come and be with us. Come fellowship with us. May your spirit fill us in Jesus' name. Amen.